Welcome to On The Record, a podcast featuring candid conversations with entrepreneurs, business leaders, academics, and cultural influencers. Today's episode features WiseLine CEO Bismarck Lepe interviewing the founders of a new company called Serbi, who just so happened to be WiseLine's former CTO Vidal Gonzalez and Bismarck's own brother, Belsasar Lepe. In the episode, they cover VC pitching during a pandemic, tech talent in Mexico, and what they read every day to stay sharp. Remember to visit WiseLine.com for all of your digital product needs. And with that being said, Bismarck, take it away. Hello, my name is Bismarck Lepe, founder and CEO of WiseLine. I'm very excited to have Vidal Gonzalez and Belsasar Lepe, the co-founders of Serbi a new uh, security company started in Silicon Valley with operations in Mexico. I'm very excited because I've had the privilege of working with both Vidal and Belsasar Lepe uh, previously at WiseLine and then before that, Uyala, uh, which was a video platform company that I co-founded with Belsasar Lepe and a good friend from college, Sean Knapp. Today, we're going to be covering startups, the evolution and the change that we've seen over the last 15 years that we've been in this space. Uh, But before we begin, today is actually a a very interesting day in the world of technology. Uh, We have the chief executives from Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple presenting and talking about why they shouldn't be broken up. And what's really interesting is they're all wearing ties. I do wonder if Satya Nadella from Microsoft is feeling a little bit left out, or he's just like saying, I dodged this one. Uh, thank, thanks for the, for the introduction. I, I think given Microsoft's history, what would it have been 20 years ago, he's, he's very happy to be uh, sitting this one out. So I, I, I think he counts himself lucky. So do you think last night they were all online on a, on a Zoom call, uh, cramming for this session. Like I totally think of just college kids cramming for the big exam. Well, it's, I don't know how much uh, coordination you'd see across all four of them. I, I, I think there might even be an element of um, if they can throw someone else under the bus, it's less scrutiny that they're seeing. So I, I, it'll be interesting to see. I haven't I haven't watched it yet. I'm probably going to go back and uh, look at the highlights once it's done because I think we're probably about two hours into it. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a fair amount of sniping amongst the group, right? Tim Cook has been well known for throwing shade at Facebook. Everyone throws shade at Amazon. Um, so I, I, I think it's uh, every person, every executive for, uh, for himself uh, is what we're probably going to see. I, I was listening to Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway's podcast this morning, Pivot. And they were just hoping that uh, Bezos would show up in a, on a throne of money and just light a cigar with a $100 bill. Uh, yeah. He's, and when he, he's, the, uh, he's the interesting figure, right? Everyone's making a big deal of the fact that, unlike the other three executives, he hasn't actually been in this setting yet. Um, so there's an element of intrigue to see. So what, what are we going to get? I mean, Bezos doesn't even do earnings calls for Amazon, from what I understand. So, um, you know, we're, we're going to see Bezos in full effect and in a way that we haven't really seen or heard from him in, in quite some time. So it should be interesting. And I, I take so, it. So many. 
What's that? Uh, so many interesting things, right? Yeah. Two of them are founders. Two of them are hired executives. Uh, it's it's exciting. May, maybe we'll we'll do a follow up. Um, and for all those who are listening, we are two people, even though Belsasar Lepe and I sound very similar. But that's because we share the same parents. Yes. I, I, I realize, yes, for those of you that uh, maybe don't see the version of this with video, that might be a little bit complicated. I'll, uh, I'll try to adopt uh, some way of designating that it's Belsasar speaking versus Bismarck. It's a very good point. Uh, fantastic. Well, let's let's get started. Um, I want to start off with uh, Vidal. You know, Vidal, I've known you for a little over 12 years. Uh, and at, when I first met you, you were a startup founder in Guadalajara trying to start a company with a, a good friend of ours, Adalberto Flores, uh, who is now the CEO and founder of a company called Quesky that's doing very well in Mexico. Uh, walk us through your startup journey. How how did you get into startups? You know, 10 years ago when we opened operations in Mexico, it was unheard of for people to leave their established companies to go start companies. But I'm assuming that even before that, it, it would have been incredibly difficult. Walk us through that process. Yeah, so I guess I come from a family that my, my father left. He's very well established and... Uh, and good job to start his own small business. And I always thought that I would do something like that. I, I enjoyed the freedom and the creation of business that my father enjoyed for, for a good while. And just like the, the concept of creating companies. So when I, when I started my career as a software engineer, I thought I'll do that when I'm 30. So uh, I don't know, it was just kind of the, the notion that I would learn how to build software by working with somebody else. And then when I became 30, I would start my own company. But I guess I was a little bit naive because uh, in a good way, my journey as an entrepreneur started far earlier. Uh, so I was software uh, engineer doing product for a Mexican company where I met Adalberto's sister. And it was funny because um, I think Adalberto just uh, asked uh, his sister Dulce, hey, do you know any good engineers from the company that you uh, work at? And, and luckily enough, I guess I was a good engineer in her eyes and, and she decided to introduce me to Adalberto. And, and when him and I just like got to meet each other at, at a meeting, I remember he was telling me about himself and, and the, some of the ideas that he had to get started. And he threw the term startup at Silicon Valley. I'm like, what is that? I, honestly, probably I was not among... The, 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 the Mexicans that didn't know about startups or didn't know about the Silicon Valley, but Adal knew very well about those concepts. When and was this? That was in what 2008. Was yeah, that was in 2008. Um, I, I believe so, if my memory doesn't fail me. Probably to, late 2007. Um, and, um, and I met him and he told me about all these things and I said, that's awesome, I'll do it tomorrow. He's like, no, you should really think about it. I'm like, no. I'm ready. Uh, so I was ready mentally, but uh, it took me some time to leave my company because I had uh, um, important things to, to wrap up. Uh, but yeah, we jumped at the opportunity, started in Vico with Adal. And um, I mean, it's, it, it was an interesting experience, but I, as I'm sure we'll talk about it during this uh, conversation, Mexico and entrepreneurship is a far different place today. And did your parents ask you, like, what are you doing? You're leaving a really high-paying, great job to go 
join this guy that you don't even know? You know what's fun? Uh, they still ask me about that, but this third time around, so I, I guess they've seen the progression of like, oh, you're doing a little better. Oh, you're doing considerably better. Oh, you're doing far better. But why would you, why would you do that, right? Uh, my, when I told my mom about Survey, it's the first time I've ever told her. I didn't want to consult with her, but I want to tell her just to see if she got it. Like, like if she understood that the, the third time starting a company, it's, it's a good indication that we're moving forward. And she gave me the same like precautionary questions. Like, oh, it's great that you're doing this, but are you sure that you want to leave WiseLine with everything that is happening? And so it's funny. I think, I think my parents now understand technology in a different way and they're happy for me, they, they are not 100% bought in my, all of a sudden, leaving very stable things to do very risky things. I don't know. Oh, I have a question Go ahead. I was going to ask, the, you know, that, that's one of the things that we've discussed, kind of uh, the three of us and, and other conversations that, you know, that, uh, that kind of the culture of going and, and starting your own startup and, in Mexico, there's there's a certain level of uh, being risk averse, right? And do you think that that's at least uh, across parents that that's become less the case that they're more open to the idea of startups? You know, with the current I, th I think so. I think so. Plus, I believe that in Mexican culture, there's still the notion that if you are to create a company, you are there forever. Like, I mean. How is somebody that helped start a company leaving six years, seven years into the making? And what happens to that company that gets to, to, to stay in, in, in function without some of the, the members that started it? Um, so I, I think it's a combination of, oh, you're leaving something stable, but then also why would you do that when you helped create that other thing, right? So I think it's a combination of those two things. And, in, and we even saw it from some of the Mexican investors that Bell, you and I were involved where they kept asking us it's like uh, the, the balance between um, WiseLine and, and this new venture. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that as well that, um, well, actually, I think we saw that from all every investor that had also invested in WiseLine since we do share some investors. And I think that's just more, it's you added a hell of a lot of value at WiseLine. So they were just <laughs> wanting to make sure that uh, there was continuity there. but. But you are right that uh, we, we did see that uh, quite a bit more across our, our investors coming from, from Mexico. Uh, right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Fascinating. Sorry, Bismarck, you were, you were going to ask a moment ago? Well, I was, I was just reminded in, in the story, you know, when we started Uyala, you were, you were just, you had just turned 19, I believe. Uh, or you actually, you hadn't 20, even exactly yet sure. turned 19. Yeah, so it was, it was the January of 2007. So you were, you, you were 19, you were going to turn 20. So you weren't even allowed to drink yet. Uh, you were working at Google and you were still going to school. And then you left everything to go start Ugala. Uh, walk, walk us through that thought process. And then also what you heard from, from our parents. It's, yeah, no, no, I, I think there's an interesting juxtaposition there, you know, relative to Vidal, who's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get started tomorrow. Um, I, I recall, at least the way I remember it, how uh, Sean and I, so Sean is our, our uh, third co-founder, uh, Bismarck, uh, uh, he, was, he was a, 
uh, contemporary of Bismarck's at, at college and I, I worked with Sean uh, at Google. Uh, but I think Bismarck reached out to both of us and I must have been working on a problem set or something and, you know, uh, different from Vidal, who's like, let's get started. I think I said, all right, let's, let's chat in a week. I need to finish this problem set. I'll, I'll get back to you. Uh, and I think Sean said something uh, kind of along the same lines. And, you know, I, in retrospect, the way I defended it is we, we had pretty good things going on at Google. We were working with great teams, working on fantastic technology. Um, and so maybe that's a little bit of, of how I would explain away the, the initial reaction. But uh, eventually we ended up meeting with Bismarck and, and, you know, he walked us through what I would say was the key insight um, and, you know, kind of a quick detour into that. The quick insight effectively was the, the dirty little secret at the time was that 90% of all traffic going to YouTube was actually professionally produced but pirated content. And what it indicated was that the way in which television was going to be viewed was fundamentally changing, right? Uh, appointment television viewing was going the way of the dodo and people wanted to have more control over how they watch television. And so, you know, hearing that from, from Bismarck who had made that, that observation, like, yes, there's, there's definitely something here, let's go and do it. And so then I said in process, the motion of, uh, or said in process, um, the whole process of, basically taking leave from Stanford and letting my manager know. And, uh, you know, the nature of Stanford is like, yeah, we see this happen all the time. They were great. My manager's like, of course, this was only a matter of time. I expected you to, to go and do this eventually. But then the conversation with uh, our parents was very, very different. Um, you know, their effect was like, well, don't you want to finish your degree? I'm not sure if this is such a good idea. Um, and uh, to this day, I, I hear something with very similar things. So, but all a very similar set of parents there where uh, every time I've uh, gone and either started a company or joined an early stage startup, they're like, well, are you really sure you want to do that? Uh, but ultimately they end up being, uh, being very, very supportive. Um, so yeah, that, that was a little bit of, of our story. And, uh, you know, we, we ended up founding Uyal in 2007, uh, shortly after uh, the Great Recession hit, and it, it was a very interesting backdrop against which to found uh, a company. And it's somewhat similar to what we're seeing now with whatever you want to call the current economic climate, um, there, there's some similarities. And where maybe when we were going through it in 2008, 2009, it's like, wow, this is very, very tough. Um, you know, when, when the economy started taking the turn for the worse, um, my reaction was actually now is the time to build. Now is the time to go and, and go and do something. And so the benefit of having gone through that experience previously, uh, I think for both Vidal and I, uh, really influenced us towards, hey, now's, now's the time to go and do something new uh, when the vast majority of the folks in the space are probably going to be focused on circling the wagons. We have the opportunity to go in and execute and execute quickly. So. Uh, yeah, that, that was a little bit of, of the founding story of, of, of Uyala. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about Serbi and the, the genesis of it and kind of where you're at right now? So we are, we are a, a company that's still in stealth. So I will be somewhat uh, vague uh, by, by design, um, but the somewhat uh, queuing up what our, what our, core insight is, uh, without going into too much detail around it, is um, fundamentally what we're seeing is the way in which technology enters the enterprise has changed. 
Uh, it used to be the case that IT teams or uh, procurement teams were responsible for the vast majority of applications, SaaS or otherwise, that we would use on a daily basis for our tasks. Uh, but now with the proliferation of SaaS and it just being so easy to go download Slack, uh, Asana, et cetera, it's increasingly the case the line of business owners and individual end users are actually the ones making critical technology decisions. And uh, this is a phenomenon that's called shadow IT. Now, there are a lot of good things around shadow IT. Uh, we would argue that you now have the people who have the most context around the daily tasks making the technology decisions. So that's good because in theory, you're seeing better technology decisions being made. But the downside is it creates a very real uh, security risk because these end users are not security experts. And so when you look at how these applications are introduced into the enterprise, they often aren't done so uh, in a way that observes security best practices. And so that's, that's the problem space that we're focused on. You know, how can we enable the end user to still have the freedom of choice around the applications that they're using on a day-to-day -day basis, but ensure that that freedom of choice doesn't jeopardize uh, the company's uh, long-term prospects uh, from a data security uh, you know, attack surface perspective. Uh, so we're about three months into it. Um, we just closed our seed round and uh, we're, we're excited about the, the road ahead. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So Vidal, you know, we've, I've, been, I've been involved on the periphery uh, on fundraising, been part of a couple of funds, I've invested in a couple of uh, companies in Mexico. But I'm assuming that the investment landscape for startups has changed dramatically, right, in the last 12 years since you tried to start Invico? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if there's a combination of things that made uh, this time around with Survey things significantly better. But, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to summarize, I think, what I've seen. When we try to raise capital with Invico, I think there was a combination of obviously the, the economy not being as, as um, performant as you would expect. And also, so I think a lot of things have changed uh, since we try to raise capital with Invico. When, when Nadal and I were pitching to investors, I have to admit that we were pretty well received, but I, I, it, it could have been just courtesy. Because then once we pitched, the combination of the founding team and the potential of the idea was pretty evident. And we didn't get as insightful questions as we did with Survey. What I mean by that is uh, back then, our idea and the fact that we hadn't built our, I guess, uh, resume around building software at scale or products and whatnot, um, did not necessarily hook the conversation about what we were doing and, and investors. But also it felt like pitching to investors felt like a privilege. Compare that to today, and I feel like that is no longer a privilege that even investors are reaching out, leaning in, looking at your profile and try to connect with you when in the past it felt like we were doing all of the look the selling right now now it feels like it's a more balanced approach uh, that from from 13 years ago but also like uh, at survey we got to pitch to some funds in mexico and latin america and i was amazed about the the growth uh, or, or the the size of those funds 
Um, I remember you, Bismarck, mentioned a couple times to me that there was a ton of capital out there being put to, to be invested. And I never really realized it or internalized it until like this time. At you didn't believe me. You didn't believe me. I didn't believe you. Be but it's that, it's that <laughs> I didn't believe you. I was like, that's an interesting thought. I just, I just don't know, right? And now with Servi and, and looking at funds from the United States, funds from Europe, international funds from Japan, Mexico, I'm like, Bismarck is right. There's a ton of money out there, which, I mean, you should take it with a grain of salt, meaning there's a ton of money to be put into investment. It is. So, Bell, for, for, the, entrepreneurs, for the entrepreneurs that are listening to this, Walk us, walk us through the process uh, that one needs to go through to raise capital. Absolutely. I mean, uh, for a seed, and it varies a little bit uh, by, by stage uh, that you're raising. So what, I'll, what we'll walk through, and you know, Vidal, please chime in because you know, I'm a partner in crime here. Um, it's a little bit different uh, for Series A versus uh, Series C versus Series B. So for Series C, it is often said um, that you can raise if you have a good team, you're tackling a good market, uh, and you have a good idea around how to go and tackle that market. So provided that you can check all three boxes, um, then you're, you're in a very, very good place. If it, should also be the if it should also happen to be the case that you've got development customers or folks that are willing to speak on your behalf around the uh, pain around the problem that you're solving that also helps and so in our case um, we were able to check all four of those boxes uh, you know i've known Vidal similarly uh, since 2009 so have a strong working history um, so there's there's a there's a strong team there uh, we're very familiar with the silicon valley and guadalajara slash mexico ecosystem so it's not just a good founding team we believe but there's the ability to pull additional talent in there uh, the market that we're going after is the shadow IT market, uh, which is a very large market. By some estimates, uh, it, is, it probably mirrors the side of, uh, size of the identity and access management space, which is a $24, $25 billion size market. Um, and then as it relates uh, to the pain, well, um, if it is the case that employees will increasingly remain remote, then you're just going to see the attack surface due to shadow IT uh, to continue, uh, continue to grow in size. So uh, with that pre-state, we felt we're, we were in a very good, good space. And so really the, uh, what, what you do at that point is you start to put your, your pitch together. Um, and depending upon where you are in your product development process, your pitch is either more uh, forward-looking in terms of, you know, this is what we are going to build. This is what um, the, the product is going to look like. Uh, if you are fairly progressed in the creation of the product, then you want to heavily emphasize showing the product itself. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if you can show elements of the product, um, then you're in a much better state. Um, so you put the pitch together. You ideally have some version of, of that uh, product. Uh, and then you go out and you, you start to have uh, meetings with, with folks. In our specific case, um, we, we are second or third time entrepreneurs. Um, and so there is an existing set of folks that have funded us before that uh, supported us and we were able to give them a relatively good return. And so we started out with those friendlies. Um, we, we gave our pitch first to them and it was rough. Uh, the first, you know, 
four or five times. And, and I think that's something to keep in mind that the more you give the pitch, the pitch just gets better. Um, it's, it's a really great dynamic that you will find that you often have with VCs where, as we all mentioned, they will ask super insightful questions. They will cause you to think about the problem that you're solving in different ways. And so your first pitch will not as not be as good as the 10th pitch that you give. And so use that in terms of how you line up the sequence of the folks that you pitch to, you know, if you're going to be pitching to that firm that you really like, um, that you really want to partner with, uh, unless you think you've really refined your pitch, uh, maybe push them further out in the sequence. Um, and so we, we did a little bit of that, you know, starting with the friendlies, the folks that were just going to be brutally honest about, uh, about our pitch. Um, and we, we started to get feedback, you know, uh, the, the first version of the pitch versus the sixth version of the pitch, because we actually went through six major iterations of the pitch. Uh, you know, we went from uh, emphasizing a very technology uh, version uh, or view of, of the problem that we were solving to something that was much more con uh, customer and consumer focused. So that's an example of one of the shifts that, that we went to. Um, and then if you end up in a position like where the one that we were in, where there was a lot of interest, uh, then you're able to take a step back and look at how you compose the round. Uh, and what we were solving for uh, was investors that uh, we had a previous working history with and or um, had some form of exposure to the security space. Uh, so they'd be able to help us recruit talent in the security space. Uh, they'd be able to help us sign advisors who'd, who'd be helpful to us also in that space. Uh, and then also would be able to make introductions to the primary buyer personas that, that we're after. Um, and so we, we, were, we did end up being oversubscribed in terms of the round that we had. Uh, and so we were able to identify those partners that we felt uh, would be able to best position us for, for, for those success points, for those items that we were optimizing for. Um, I would say probably end to end, uh, it was about a two month process, um, which is a little bit longer than, you know, than our seed stage. Um, I think that was probably a couple of days uh, for us at, at Uyala. Uh, and, you know, and some of that is, is I think, owed to the nature of these COVID times. We're not able to meet in person. And so uh, there's more due diligence, uh, due diligence to be done on the part of the investor. Um, we're not able to have those physical sit-downs. Um, a lot more just needs to be baked into the pitch. So that's something else uh, to just account for that. Uh, how you pitch your idea now is, is very different from how you would have been doing it six or seven months ago. Um, and it's a very weird, uh, I will say in air quotes, dating process that you're going through now because you can't actually uh, meet people in person. So um, because of that, uh, we did heavily index towards investors that we knew, that knew us, that we'd worked together before. Um, so that, that's, that's what that process looked like. A um, lot of iteration. Um, some sequencing of the investors, knowing that the pitch was going to evolve, um, and then trying to be very smart around lining up um, our investors' investment thesis with what we were trying to accomplish. So, Bell, I'm, I'm sure that there are entrepreneurs that are going, those lucky SOBs, two months, two months, because they're going, that's nothing. But how many, how many individual investors actually pitch and how many meetings investor meetings do you think you had in that two-month period 
but I'll, uh, correct me on this. I keep me honest. I think it was between 50 and 60, uh, investors. Yeah. Um, and one, one of the nice things about, um, the dynamics changing of, of, you know, the backdrop of, of, of COVID is, you know, there were days where we were able to stack up three to five, uh, investor meetings and, it's a lot harder to do that when you have to do them in person, right? Um, because you have to, you know, if you're doing it here in Silicon Valley, you have to drive up to Sand Hill. And, uh, you know, if you're in the city, that's, that's a good uh, lengthy commute. And I'm, I'm complaining and, and, you know, I shouldn't be, but um, th that is one of the plus sides of, of you know, everyone being, uh, I suppose, kind of quarantined at home. Uh, you're able to do a lot of these meetings back to back. And for what it's worth, I've heard the VC say the exact same thing. It's like, this is great. We're able to meet with, you know, 10 uh, uh, potential entrepreneurs on a, on a daily basis. And you also uh, hear them saying, um, maybe we'll keep it this way. Maybe we'll do more of the early process entirely over Zoom. Um, I hope not, because there's a lot that you lose when you can't be in the room uh, with a potential partner. There are like these visual cues and body language that, that you lose. Um, so we did end up pitching between 50 and 60. Uh, about half of them did express some form of interest in, in, in participating, which is, which is great. Um, and it is interesting that those folks that we were meeting for the first time, um, they were not able to move as, as quickly as, as the other folks. Um, so that, that, is, um, that is also something that's interesting, that um, the, the due diligence on their part just takes a, a, a while longer. And so something that I would say to entrepreneurs is, you know, just, just to the extent you can be, be patient um, because this doesn't just impact you, it impacts uh, their processes as well. And um, because they're not able to meet you, because they're not able to develop a relationship in person, there, there's just way more work that, that needs to be done to get to that point of, you know, deep conviction and, and an investment. And I guess another... No, but, I, but I think that, I think that, that the 50 to 60 investors is, is really key because in the end, it's a sales process. And it, it's always a game of numbers. You remember as we were coming out of the, the economic downturn in 2008, 2009, when we, we did our second institutional round, we ended up pitching 160, 170. And actually, I think it was 173 that we ended up pitching. And it wasn't until the 171st that we finally got a yes. And sometimes you talk to entrepreneurs who, who get three no's and they just give up. Yeah, it's, and let me comment on that, and, and Vidal, please want to hear your thoughts as well. And, and, and I think that's such an important point, because the no is not always a no on the idea. So much of this is a fit, right? And sometimes when they say no, it's actually good for you, uh, because sometimes the investor might be self-selecting out and saying, hey, I'm, I don't think I'm the right investor for you. And, and so that's why so much of this is finding the right partnership, the right marriage, um, you know, if, if you have a good team, if you have a good idea, if you have customers that are interested in your, uh, in, in what you're solving potentially for them, uh, chances are there is an investor out there that will be a good partner. Um, and it's very likely, unlikely that that partner will be in the first, you know, 50% of the folks that you meet with. And, and so that it is a process, you know, and, and, and sales, what is it? Uh, if you have a conversion rate of 25%, you're, you're, you're phenomenal. Um, at least at, you know, stage two, stage three. And, and I think you see something very similar here with, uh, with pitching investors. 
Yeah, and I was going to add to that as well that um, not only the number of meetings that we had, but also the iterations over the deck that we had, which I believe were close to 10. I mean, and, and there were, there were always, I, I felt like there was a point in, in our um, pitching process or talking to investors process that it felt like it was converging. I have to admit that at the beginning, I was like, do we have a real company here? Uh, are we solving a real problem? And that's the, that could be the stage where many developers felt in despair and then quit, right? But have you, you already had you already resigned from Wiseline? I had, I had. You were like, oh no! Did I yeah, I'm like, what am I gonna do? Uh, it's COVID. Uh, but but no, I mean, I I knew. I mean, even though there's always that paranoia because it's healthy. Like that paranoia keeps you forward. I mean, there's no choice. There's no going back. Um, but you need burn to... the bridges burn the bridges <laughs> yeah bell and i talked about that. burn the ships Courtney yeah burn the ships like burn the ships yeah. we are burning the ships we're not yeah, going... not the bridges the bridges you want to keep the bridges alive yeah. <laughs> cut all the ships cut all the ships there you go <laughs> but uh you you saw how like you you were getting some confusing feedback uh, there's no market here is that really a problem for some of these companies is media such a big space because we were focusing on media at the beginning um, but then you start shaping that feedback and pitching more and more and more, and you start to see convergence of both your problem statement, your solution statement, the space that you're in, and how it starts to click with people. I remember it was like a week or two after we had made our first few pitches, and then that new version of the deck started clicking with people, and I knew. I knew that I knew we would, we would raise money. I knew we were solving a, an important problem because the... the um, the measure of whether you're doing well should not be how much money are you going to be able to raise? Yes, that's a good uh, like sideline indicator or proxy indicator. But the most important thing is that people that you're pitching to need to acknowledge that you're solving a real problem. And when, we, when I saw that people were, yeah, that's a real problem and I would like to, to pay for it or I would like to invest in your company to help you solve it, um, that's when I knew I don't know how much we're going to raise. I don't know when we'll close this round, but we will have a company. Well, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. So both of you, what was the most surprising piece of, of this process? Belle, you had, you had gone through it before. Uh, and then after, after Uyala, you went to a company called Impira. And so you saw some of it, um, not as a, a founder at a second company, but what was surprising and Badal saying, same to you. What was the most surprising? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of say the following against the backdrop of what we saw when we were fundraising for, for we all, and I, I caught the tailwind um, of how this happened at Impura. Um, the oddities of pitching through Zoom aside, uh, one of the things that surprised me is just how much more accepted uh, the idea of talent not just being in Silicon Valley is, um, you know, for, for Uyala, what eventually motivated our working uh, with uh, Vidal and the incredible talent pool in Guadalajara was in part that uh, the Great Recession had just happened. We needed to be smarter about the capital that we brought on. And so we wanted to look at more uh, cost-effective, capital-efficient ways of 
continuing our the increase of our development velocity. And so that forced us to look at Guadalajara and it was one of the best decisions that I think we made in, in those first two or three years. And, and that, that was considered uh, very atypical at the time. Um, but now, you know, that, that, that's the idea that you can be a remote company. Uh, the idea that your team isn't based in Silicon Valley fully, um, it, it's, it's far more accepted. Uh, and so that's something that's actually very positive to see um, that in these last 10 years, you've seen more of a pivot towards, it doesn't have to be a, UA, a US based, uh, based company. In fact, you know, we were talking to um, a government entity that um, interested in potentially investing and also being a customer. And, you know, we, we raised like, hey, you know, some of our, uh, actually a good part of our development team is in Guadalajara, Mexico. Is that going to be an issue? And the response back was, no, not at all. Um, most of the folks that we work with have teams in India and, and Mexico, Latin America. She didn't mention China, um, which, you know, uh, <laughs> tell you something. But outside of China and outside of Russia and outside of, you know, uh, those, those countries, um, it, it just become very commonplace. And so that, that's something that I was pleasantly surprised to see that the strategy of how you assemble your team, um, it is more global uh, in nature. Yeah, I would say the same. Uh, and, and also back to my earlier point about just uh, even though we're in a potential recession due to COVID, um, there is, there is um, appetite to put capital to work. And, and I guess confirmation from our experience that it is a good time to build a company. Um, there's never a good time, but this is a pretty good time. I believe that investors saw that. Uh, we saw that, and, and, and that was a good surprise. Um, yeah, like, like Bell said, that the world has changed significantly, and looking at a founding team that is in, in two different locations probably 10 years ago would not have been seen as a great idea. But with COVID, what do you do, right? So Bell being in San Francisco, me being in Guadalajara, totally fine. Uh, and we didn't, have, we didn't have any issues with anybody given the, like, the immediate need to start remote. Yeah. yeah, back in 2007, if you weren't within a 40 mile radius of Sandhill, it was yeah. very, very difficult for you to get up to Series A. Series B, and obviously the, you know, the, the Israeli model is a great model. They, they were able to get seed to Series A. And then once you hit growth, they were able to come to the U.S., go to Sandhill. And that model of having a team in Israel and having commercial operations in the U.S. was accepted. But the idea that you were seed or Series A and you didn't have your entire team close to Sandhill was, was just very difficult to find. Right. And it's, it's interesting because even in 2007, which, which is when we were, you know, raised, or 2007, 2009, it would still turn a couple of heads if your team was in San Francisco versus being in Mountain View. And, and so it's just, it's, just, it's fascinating how much things have, have changed over that, you know, decade, decade plus. Um, so it, it, it's good. This is great uh, because, you know, Silicon Valley shouldn't have an, a monopoly on the talent. Um, and the more that can happen to, you know, cause these emerging ecosystems outside of the U.S. to grow, that that's, it benefits everybody. Uh, it's a good thing for, for all parties involved. So customers in the U.S. with development teams in other markets like Mexico, strategically very important and very doable.
Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we also have customers in, in Mexico looking at customers in, in Canada as well. So um, it's, it's uh, looking at the Americas as a whole in our initial go to market motion. That's true. A lot of a lot of people don't realize that Mexico's economy is, you know, roughly the size of the Spanish economy, roughly the size of the Australian economy, roughly the size of the Italian economy. It's and it's right next door. Uh, so when I was in college, I tried to start five different companies. They all failed. Uh, I never got them. I, I raised a little bit of money, but they never really did anything. And it wasn't until I went to Google and I got to see the the growth that I learned a few things, built up a, a bit of a network, and I was, you know, we were able to get some success with Uyala. Operating Vidal and, and Bell, what, what are some of the, the key insights? Because, okay, you have a product idea, you have a good market, you have, you have a good team, and you're able to raise capital. But that doesn't really dictate success your ability to operate a successful business is what dictates success. So what are some of the learnings from uh, scaling Uyala and scaling WiseLine uh, that you're going to apply to Serbi? I can start first if uh, that's cool with you, Vidal. Uh, I'm a firm believer that uh, you need to be shipping early and shipping often. Um, you know, and, and, you know, we're, we're about done with setting up the infrastructure, but you know, at this point forward, really the focus is on, there shouldn't be a week that goes by when you're not shipping something new, putting in a customer's hands and getting feedback. Um, and so that, that cadence of getting feedback from your consumer needs to be, uh, you know, can't go longer than a week. Uh, and if you can make it more regular than a week, then you know, chances are you're going to succeed. Um, and, and I think some of the companies that have advised and, and, you know, what I've seen at, 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 at Uyala and what we're trying to do here at Serbia is you, you need to just be monomaniacally focused on having that cadence, that high cadence of iteration and release and feedback. The tighter you can make that loop, um, the more operationally efficient you will be. Um, and the better you will be at lining yourself up with the demand curve and the requirements that your users have. Um, so I think that that's something that's super critical. Um, the other thing I would mention is, you know, I, I, I think sometimes founding teams, and I've, I've seen this also with some of the companies I've, I've worked with previously, they approach these early months and years as being about product market fit and product, which is important. I mean, it, it's, it's super important, but they don't also realize that a very key responsibility that those founders have is not just building the product, but building the company that builds the product, uh, building the right team that builds that product. And I think if you can adopt that broader lens of you're not just building a product, you're building a sustainable engine, uh, specifically the company that maintains and will evolve that product. If you take that more holistic view, chances are that you're looking at it through uh, a lens that's more likely to lead to success. Along, along those lines, I think, uh, yeah, I totally overlap over the two topics, uh, especially the team one. Uh, so our focus here has been, uh, our team will be small, uh, will be small for a, for a few months, if not a couple of years, no more than 20. Um, at least from an engineering perspective. And, and so in that, you should really be careful in 
choosing the team that you bring in very early on because if it's going to be a small team for the next two years, that means that that team will probably stay as you designed it from the beginning, right? Because there's not going to be a lot of rotation, not a lot of people leaving, hopefully, right, if you're doing things right. And that will help you build a, a very good product. And the one thing that I want to do differently from, from learnings of, of past experiences is Aruyala was very, like, I believe that video was somewhat of a simple concept because every, every engineer was familiar with consuming a video, but, but the technologies um, and the concepts of that domain of streaming video and whatnot, it was a technically somewhat sophisticated space. And that, so for developers to become productive and really deliver value, they needed to understand um, the concepts of the video space. At, at WiseLine, I believe that we could have done and I could have done a better job at getting the engineering team excited about the domain that we were working in right? and understand it very well, not just the technology piece, but also the customers, the competitors, everything around the domain. So at Survey, uh, one of the things that has been one of my top concerns is making sure that the, the team has context not only from a technology perspective, but also how the technology that we're building directly connects with the domain that we're in, which is identity and, and security. And, and because if, if you would make better decisions and design a, a better product, if you understand the, the domain that you're working on very, very well. Yeah. Okay, no, that, that makes perfect, that makes perfect sense. Uh, so right now with, uh, the topic of, of inclusion and equity, I think, Bell, you shared a stat that said that, you know, there are fewer than 200 uh, Latinx founders that have raised over a million dollars in kind of the history of, of venture capital. And so you're looking at a sizable percentage of the overall population uh, right here. In, in going through the process, did you, did you ever feel like you you weren't included or you were excluded because you you came from a particular group uh, I'd all appreciate your thoughts on this as well I'll speak to kind of what I saw uh, I um, I did not um, I, I didn't experience it I, I think it's and there's something to be taken away from that but um, you know I, I mentioned to you both there was some minor concern on going and raising a round um, so early in the pandemic and it's kind of corresponding economic impact. But you know what, there's a lot of capital out there. Uh, I mean, just an extraordinary amount. And yes, if you look at it statistically relative to uh, year over year growth, I think it's being said that we're at half the number of seed investments that we were at. Uh, relative to last year, and this is the lowest number of seed investments in Q2 and um, so far Q3 since 2015. So there has been an impact, but I think that's more to do with just now the length of the investment cycle versus the total willingness to to invest. And so, you know, going back to your question, I, I didn't experience um, that there was some. Uh, any element of exclusion. And, and I, I think one can look at that as, as being positive. You know, maybe the way that I would frame it is um, much like everyone else, folks that are VCs that are investors, they're creatures of habit, right? 
Um, they look for patterns that have resulted in success before. And the very popular profile has been, they went to one of these elite American schools, uh, Stanford, MIT, you know, Berkeley, CMU. They then worked at you know, an Amazon, a Google, and then maybe they've been an entrepreneur once with, with an exit, right? And, and so those folks that have that profile tend to get funded um, more easily and more frequently than others. But the reality is with as much capital as there is, it's going to require those investors to branch out from that profile uh, and realize if they haven't already that there are other profiles that actually can lead to just as successful outcomes, if not more successful. And, and so I, I think that that's something that is, that is very exciting um, that, uh, you know, and this is, you know, we've had this conversation before. Uh, I think that that's one of the positive elements of there being as much funding or as much capital as there is that the time is now for different profiles, entrepreneurs of different backgrounds, different, uh, you know, experiences to get funded and, and go out and build what I believe they're just as capable of, of going out and building. Um, so, you know, in summary, I, I, I didn't see anything, um, but, you know, Vidal, curious for, for your take, having gone through the process as, you know, partner in this. Yeah, so uh, well, I have to first say that we were incredibly lucky, and I guess uh, the fact that we had already uh, started a couple of companies played to our advantage, but um, inevitably I saw, and I've seen this all my life, so I, I, I won't say I'm immune to it, but I know how to handle it. Um, I don't mind when people discard what I've done or my experience because I, I am in Guadalajara and I am in Mexico. I first assume that if you, if you need more convincing about what we can do, it's my job to educate. Um, and then if you take those points about Guadalajara, about talent being more distributed across the globe and that many companies are, are looking at it that way, then we can start to get to the important stuff, which is, are we worthy of the time and investment to go build a company? Which, I mean, every entrepreneur should be able to get to that level unless there's something evidently wrong with the relationship on the founding team or they probably haven't done something significantly with their careers to be uh, ready to start a company. But I, I think those are kind of biases, I guess. But what I found is two things. So if somebody had heard about Mexico and the tech ecosystem, the conversation was like straight up to the problem and, and what we were doing. If they hadn't heard about Mexico and that there were that there are great engineers in this part of the world, they would scrutinize a little bit our, our backgrounds a little bit more, especially mine, uh, because um, but, People's biases, right? Like, so really, like, are, are there great engineering teams in Guadalajara? And how would you do that? Um, and uh, so I felt that in a very slight way, no, no disrespect at all, no, no notion of, of uh, being discriminated at all. Again, caveating it with, we were extremely uh, blessed to be able to raise around rather quickly. But I have to say that still human biases are still there, right? Like, it's very easy to think, uh, founding team in the Silicon Valley, um, like US trained uh, talent uh, will get in the door rather quickly, uh, but it's, 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 it's normal, right? Like I, I might have my own biases with uh, 
other things. So totally normal. If I could add something, okay. I'm, I'm the optimist here sometimes. Watch, I think we're, we both have uh, our, where we are optimistic. You're the optimist? Yes. No, no, <laughs> the optimist? Where we are optimistic is complimentary, <laughs> right? Because I'm paranoid in some areas where Vidal is optimistic and vice versa. So it's, that's, that's the, how you want to look at the, <laughs> the, the, the uh, kind of marriage for, for founders. But um, I, I definitely, Vidal's point is a very good one. But to kind of maybe frame it um, through a slightly different lens, I think what is positive is different from 10 years ago they would have just shut down. It's like, oh, this doesn't fit the pattern. I don't like uh, Guadalajara, I, I don't know how I feel about that. And maybe it's just the backdrop of kind of the, the current social unrest, the, the fact that it is being highlighted that black and Latin, uh, Latinx uh, founders see a whole lot less capital. There is a very tangible, uh, palpable desire to learn. They're, they're willing to learn, right? They will give you the the, the investors on the other side of not the table to Zoom um, actually will take the time to, to, to listen. And so I, I think that that's good. Is it great? No. What would be much better is if, you know, Black and Latinx founders were seeing a more uh, equitable kind of distribution of capital. But on the road to that, I think the conversation starts with being willing to learn, being willing to ask the questions and actually keeping an open mind. And, and, and I, I think without fail, we did see that. Uh, I don't know at all if you would agree with that, that folks yeah. are willing to be educated. And, and it could be a, a strength, right? Because if you, if, you, if you have that bogey or that uh, hurdle to overcome, it could help you dis discern the people that really get it, right? From the people that, have, that still have those strong biases. So you get people that are excited about the idea and the team, and they will support you in ways that you probably otherwise wouldn't be supported if, if they were not as convinced. They might say, oh yeah, I guess it didn't work out because they were a team outside of the Silicon Valley. Whereas the people that are convinced, they would say like, no, like we, we can, I mean, when, when challenges come to the company and they will ever come, they will always come, they will see the challenges from a different angle rather than, oh, it's because it's a team that hasn't done this before. Kind of way, right? Yeah, no, so slightly gratuitous, slightly gratuitous. But I want you, Bell, speak to uh, Aduyala initially uh, starting to use a, a third-party development company to build core product, and now at Serbi, it being part of your core strategy. Yeah, no, no, we we um, we we did that um, at Uyala. Um, unfortunately, we didn't use WiseLine then, uh, much to my personal chagrin, um, but uh, we, we did do that, became part of our strategy. Uh, it, it just makes a ton of sense, it, you know, especially for a seed stage company like ourselves. Um, it, it allows you to prototype faster. Uh, you're able to get uh, folks on board that uh, are very, very talented. Um, and it just allows you to iterate and test so much faster. You know, going back to two or three questions ago, it's like, you know, operationally, what are some of the foundational tenets that you need to be looking at? Iterate quickly, get feedback quickly. And, and when you think about things that way, why wouldn't, like, why would you be spending, uh, you know, precious capital runway on, on going and recruiting when you can bring in a team, and in our case, WiseLine, uh, to help you go out and validate ideas uh, quickly. And, and so that, that's what we've done. Um, about half of our team today is, is from WiseLine, uh, developers, design, and, and QA. 
uh, and they've been really critical to just getting, getting, giving us a true running start. Like we, we hit the ground running. Even before we closed our seed round, we said, we're gonna do this. We brought that team in and they were able to help us get mocks together. They were able to help us validate implementation approaches. Um, and I, I think so much of this is, is, is acting with urgency and not letting any you know, second go to waste. Uh, bringing in a fully formed team from from Wiseline in our case uh, allowed us to take advantage of those early uh, early moments and actually push those learnings forward into our pitch. Um, and so when they were asking us technical implementation questions of you know how are you uh, how are you layering on permissioning how are you looking at DNS. Um, we, we could actually say, well, we looked at this um, and it wasn't just the fruits of Vidal's labor who, that we were talking about. It was a team of five that had already gone and looked at this. So um, I, I think that's valuable. And I, I do think that more and more folks are open to that, that form of, of kind of operation, especially uh, this early on. Now, longer term, I think there's also sometimes a reticence to use uh, nearshore or offshore uh, partnering, uh, partnering for you know, well-established products. And the reality is there's also a very well-established history of using third parties in those situations as well. It can be everything from bringing in a team to help you, again, ideate faster to, um, you know, leveraging a third-party team to help you end-of-life a product. So, you're, you're, you know, if you have the, the distinction of core and uh, non-core product, you know, you can refocus uh, your, the team that's a direct employee on, on the core uh, the core products. So the variety of strategies here where working with a firm like Wiseline actually is, is, is immensely helpful. But I have to say, and I, I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir as well as doing a little bit of uh, promotion here, like not, not every company that does uh, teams or, or outsource of talent can, can do it. I think uh, the combination of knowing how to build products and the type of engineering culture that Wiseline has has allowed us to hit the ground running faster than than any other companies. It's when you're building a, a product, you need everybody being um, mission oriented uh, and vision aligned. And you cannot work with just mercenaries, right? Like people that, oh, I'm just here to get paid. Uh, so it's been great to work with people that understand that missionary type of uh, mentality. And like we, the management of the Wiseon team has been very good. Like we, we don't need to invest that much in, in, in managing that team. Yeah. And it does. Well, that's awesome. I think you're, if I could add something else, I think that point goes both ways too sometimes, right? That um, sometimes it's the, the contracting party that doesn't know how to work with third parties, but sometimes that third party also doesn't know how to work with early stage companies. Uh, and, and I think that that's one of the things that's great about WiseLine is it does in my experience, because I've, I've worked with them both here and then in my previous role at Empira, uh, Wiseline knows how to work with companies pretty much independent of what stage of product development or company maturity that they're at. And I, I think that that's something that's, that's extremely important. You look at some of the larger, more established uh, folks, you know, they need you, uh, they require you to have your product lifecycle documented and you know, have all of these established processes. And, and so it's this really long drawn out organ rejection process that, that you end up having to go through. And, and, and so, you know, to, to Vidal's point, I think the opposite is also true and, and something that's worked to our benefit here working with, with Wiseline. Well, that's fantastic. So, all right, last question or comments. 
for, for you. So uh, piece of guidance, blog, book that you read that would be useful for the startup founders that are out there. So I, I will start. Uh, as I was pre preparing for, for this, and I'm, I'm uh, lately, uh, if, if the book doesn't require too much visual aid, I, I do Audible. Audible is phenomenal. It's a great way to hack, like Matrix style, a lot of content into your head. Uh, so I was listening to Zero to One as well as Inspired. Inspired is, um, is the second version of it. Uh, and how to build products. Uh, it, it, this version or this edition had a lot more around enterprise uh, building products, but it, like the concept of uh, customer product, customers for product development was, was drawn from there. And, and Bell also had already experience doing that. But I think it, it helped shape some of the activities that we prioritize early on as building a company. And then zero to one is just because uh, it's, it's quite interesting. I think it's, it's a way to give you confidence of, of what you're doing. I don't agree with a lot of the things that uh, uh, the book mentions, but it's, it's great inspiration for any, any developer, any, I'm sorry, any entrepreneur to kind of wrap your head around uh, building a company for the long term and, and solving a really interesting problem. So those are the two recommendations I, I will give. Yeah, I'll go maybe a little bit more meta, which is um, I spend at least, and you know, Vidal's probably like, maybe you shouldn't be spending that much time reading every day. But uh, actually, I know that Vidal's also a voracious reader. Um, I, I think the, the perspective on this is just make sure you're reading a lot. And, and, and uh, you know, so uh, Bismarck, I think you mentioned uh, the, the Pivot podcast uh, earlier on today. I don't know if it was while we were recording or not, but um, make sure that there are a couple of podcasts that you subscribe to a couple of newsletters that may be industry specific and just on a regular basis, make sure that you're, you're, you're soaking it in. I mean, yes, there are a ton of kind of specific books that you can read that, that might be helpful, but um, you know, I, I think ultimately your perspective is going to be colored by a variety of different sources and signals and that eventually results in how you approach kind of your, your work style. So just, just make sure that you have a variety of sources that you're pulling from. Uh, for me, there are four or five daily newsletters. I start out my day reading those and seeing what's going on. There's usually two of those newsletters have um, like a founder spotlight. Um, there are a couple of podcasts that uh, if I'm running or cycling that I listen to. Or um, So yeah, that, that's kind of my, my approach. So it's a bit of a cop out. I'm not giving you specific reads, but uh, that, that's my more general approach. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Bell, Vidal, I wish you the best of luck with Serbi uh, and thank you for the time today. Uh, maybe in a couple of months, we'll do a follow-up to see how Serbi is doing. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks, Bismarck.